Hebrews chapter 5, we begin in verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, and let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 15, knowing that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. When you think about such characters in the Bible as Moses or David or Paul in the New Testament, it's not hard to list a number of things that they have in common. They're all great men of the Bible. Their lives stand out as examples for the people of God. They are all authors of some of the books of the Bible. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. David penned many, even most of the Psalms. And Paul wrote much of the New Testament in his epistles. You could say of all of them that their experience of God was very rich. Moses being called up to the mount of God where his face shone when he beheld the glory of God. David, who knew God intimately, as the Psalms indicate to us. Paul, who saw the glory of Christ on the Damascus road and was taken up to the third heaven, as he tells us later on in his second epistle to the Corinthians, an experience so rich that it would become sinful to even attempt to describe it. And so he doesn't. These things make these men stand out as outstanding examples who are to be emulated and whose experiences are to be coveted by every true Christian. And yet these are not the things that I have in mind this afternoon when I think of these three men. 
there is yet something else that they also have in common, something that's easy to overlook, something that I suppose we just as soon pass over when it comes to coveting their experience and emulating their character. And the thing that I'm referring to now is divine chastisement. All three of these men that I've just listed were the recipients of divine chastisement. Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. He was punished or chastised by God for his failure to honor God at the waters of Meribah. David was approached by the prophet Gad near the end of his life, and he was told to choose his punishment for the sin of numbering the people. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And though he sought the Lord three times to remove that thorn, the Lord would not heed Paul's request. All three of these great men of the Bible were the recipients of divine chastisement. And as we learn from the passage we read this afternoon, this is not unusual for them, nor is it unusual for any child of God. On the contrary, it's something we can and should expect of God. <coughs> for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Do you see how universal, then, this spiritual discipline is? It's not something that applies only to the great men of the Bible, nor is it something that only applies to those that belong to the Lord, but their behavior is such that they may be among the worst of those that name the name of Christ. The text makes it so plain that divine chastisement applies to every true child of God to the point that if you can honestly say that you're an exception to it, then you have cause to wonder whether or not you truly are a Christian. Look at verse 8 again from the chapter we read from Hebrews 12. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. The fact that every true child of God has been and will be a recipient of divine chastisement means then that this is a subject that needs to be rightly understood. And it is a subject that receives actually quite a bit of attention in the Bible. It's the message of the 73rd Psalm. It's the subject, arguably, of the entire book of Job. You can find the Apostle Paul addressing the issue in various instances in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, he points out that because of their careless attitude toward the Lord's Supper, many Christians were weak and sickly, and some even died. And in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul makes reference to his own chastisement and describes his thorn in the flesh. 
Revelation 3 and verse 19, Christ in his dealings with the seven churches issues a statement that could apply to them all when he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And it is so very important to make that connection between the Lord's love and his chastisement. You begin to see then that this is an extensive subject throughout the Bible. And as I said a moment ago, it's a subject that needs to be rightly understood by the Christian. The passage we read from just now makes that plain. Ye have forgotten, the author writes in verse 5, ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children or sons. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And doesn't that text make it clear that if we don't rightly understand the Lord's dealings with us, then we'll be tempted to read the Lord's purpose wrong, and as a result, we will despise how the Lord is dealing with us, or we'll cave in and faint when the Lord chastises us. You see, divine chastisement does not function automatically. Becoming the recipient of a beating, as it were, doesn't in and of itself promote holiness in our lives. That's something we need to know as Christians. It's something we need to appreciate as parents who seek to chastise our children. Chastisement doesn't function automatically. In the case of children, we need to pray that the Lord will make our discipline effectual. And as Christians and parents also, we need to appreciate that the benefit of chastisement reaches us through a proper understanding of that chastisement. In other words, we need to contemplate God's dealings with us when those dealings seem to be harsh. And we need to understand what God is doing and what he is definitely not doing when we become the beneficiaries of divine chastisement. So I want to address that subject for a little while this afternoon, and I want to address it with a definite aim in view, that aim being that we may learn to gain the benefit of divine chastisement. Gaining the benefit of divine chastisement. That's my theme. And in the moments that remain, I want you to consider with me how we gain the benefit of divine chastisement. Consider with me, first of all, that if we would gain that benefit, we must avoid the wrong response to divine chastisement. Notice the words in verse 5, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. That's the first wrong response, to despise the chastening of the Lord. The word despise means literally to care little for or to regard lightly, to make small account. There are times you see that the Lord brings things upon us in order to get our attention. 
It could be something like a financial setback, or it might be related to a health issue. It might be a failure of some kind. The Lord allowing you to fall flat on your face, as it were. It might take the form of persecution, or it might be simply the removal of the sense of the Lord's presence. The worst thing we can do in any negative circumstance of life is to adopt a sort of fatalistic attitude through which we become oblivious to the things that happen to us. We fail, in other words, to pursue wisdom. We adopt the same attitude the world adopts, which is to simply try to ignore the providence of God knocking on the door of our lives in order to issue a wake-up call or to move us to examine ourselves. In their worst spiritual condition, the Israelites failed to take to heart the harsh dealings of God with them. In Isaiah chapter 1, we find an example of this where the Lord says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward, why should you be stricken any more? You will revolt more and more. Oh, there's a perfect example of a people that are despising the chastening of the Lord. The people of God uh, at times harden their hearts to the things that are designed by God to draw them back. Yet very often in their pride and arrogance, the people of God maintain their innocence rather than examine their hearts and make amendments to their lives. We can become too proud to think that we need any amendment to our lives. We may try to compare ourselves to those that are lost and steeped in vile sin, and we reason that they're the ones that ought to examine their lives in the midst of their hardships. But me examine my life? I'm so much better than others. Surely there's no need for me to think that God may be dealing with me in order to get my attention with the aim of improving my life. That's exactly, you know, how the Israelites reasoned in Old Testament times. And in that fashion, in our day, it becomes possible to despise the chastening of the Lord. In this condition, we not only fail to gain the benefit of divine chastisement, but we actually go from bad to worse. If you would gain the benefit, therefore, you must avoid the kind of hardness of heart that keeps you from responding to harsh providences the way you should. Now, in verse 5 of Hebrews 12, we are told not only that we should not despise the chastening of the Lord, but we're also told that we should not faint when we're rebuked of him. In a sense, you could say that the word faint here represents the other extreme of despising the Lord's chastening. In the one instance, the Christian hardens his heart to the Lord's dealings. In the other instance, he caves into despair under those dealings. 
You might equate him to an immature child who pouts and grumbles when he's punished and thinks that his parents are treating him unfairly. He may be willing to acknowledge some wrongdoing, but he thinks that the Lord's dealings are totally disproportional to the magnitude of his crimes. Enter the picture Job. That's eventually how he came to think under the Lord's chastising hand. You find another example of this in Psalm 73. In that psalm, the psalmist complains that the sinners of the world have it easier than the people of God. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he writes. He then goes on to complain how the wicked never seem to suffer hardship. The wicked have more than heart could wish. They sin with impunity. Nothing happens to them when they sin. The psalmist, by way of contrast, is plagued and chastened every morning, verse 14. And by fainting under God's discipline, he reaches the premature conclusion in verse 13 that he has cleansed his heart in vain. As if he's saying, it's not worth it to be a Christian. That's what he's saying in effect. So much easier in life to be a sinner than to be a Christian. In the context or the setting of Hebrews 12, this is exactly what the Hebrew Christians were facing. They were being sorely chastised by way of persecution from the unbelieving Jews. And life had become hard. Life would be so much easier for them by renouncing Christ and going back to apostate Judaism. The load was too heavy to bear, and in their weakness they felt themselves on the brink of caving into despair. That's why this letter was written to them. We'll see a little later that this is really a very short-sighted and immature response to the dealings of the Lord. For now, let me say simply that this is one more thing that must be avoided if we're going to gain the benefit of divine chastisement. We're not to despise the chastening of the Lord, nor are we to faint under that chastening. Despising that chastisement or fainting under it can lead to the third thing to be avoided, which is also the worst thing to fall prey to. Look at what it says in verse 15, Hebrews 12. We are instructed, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. That is really an incredible statement when you think of it. The grace of God failing. A person being so faint or so hard-hearted, so despising the providential dealings of the Lord, that it's as if the grace of God fails, and he finds himself instead dominated by bitterness. Falling prey to bitterness, you know, is a little bit like being shut up in prison. 
You become surrounded by concrete walls and nothing can reach you. No exhortation affects you. No reminders of Christ's love reach your heart. And that bitterness functions like a filter through which everything enters before it reaches your mind. You adopt a martyr's complex that says, everybody hates me, nobody understands me, everything is against me. I preached the message some while back on that text in verse 15, and I pointed out then that the word trouble is the same word we sometimes see translated by the word vex. It's used most often in connection with a demon-possessed man who is vexed by the devil. A man that is swallowed up in bitterness may give you the impression through his hardness that he's almost demon-possessed. It can certainly be said of such a man what a distressed father said of his son who was possessed with a demon that Christ's disciples were not able to cast out. He said in Luke 9 and verse 39, And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly departeth from him. That's true of bitterness, you know. It tears and bruises and hardly departs from those who become infected by it. We see then some of the things that must be avoided if we're going to gain the benefit of divine chastisement. We must avoid despising the Lord's chastening. We must avoid fainting under the Lord's chastening. And we must avoid being swallowed up by bitterness under the Lord's chastening hand. So that's our subject negatively considered. Consider with me next and finally that if we're to gain the benefit of divine chastisement, we must practice the right response to it. There's a wrong response and there's a right response. And the first thing we must consider under this heading is the manner of our response to divine chastisement. Verse 5 tells us, Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. And the word children could be translated and often is translated in other English versions by the word sons. You've forgotten your sonship, in other words. I said a moment ago that to respond to divine chastisement by fainting under it is to respond the way an immature child might respond to discipline. It isn't right. It isn't fair. Poor me. I'm being mistreated. I'm persecuted for no reason. When the word of exhortation speaks unto us, as unto sons, the lesson you can draw from that is that you're being addressed not as little immature children, but as mature sons. In other words, when you find yourself undergoing divine chastisement, you could say there's a sense in which you simply need to grow up, as it were, and take it as a mature son and not respond like an immature, spoiled brat. 
I like the way the Amplified Version puts it in verse 5. Are you familiar with the Amplified Version of the New Testament? That's the version that tries to draw from all of the other versions and amplify them. Listen to what it says. And have you completely forgotten the divine word of appeal and encouragement in which you are reasoned with and addressed as sons? I have found even as an adult in this world that there are times in the realm of life that I need to be corrected and I need to be rebuked. I have also found that these times are not so hard to bear if I can perceive a constructive purpose behind them. I remember, I think it was at youth camp last year, we had a panel of preachers, which I had to be a part of, sitting on the stage, fielding questions. And one of the questions, and I think this one was given to me to deal with, is um, tell me about Presbyterianism. Why are you a Presbyterian? And among the things that I said is, um, I need accountability in my own life. Uh, I, I, I need at times to be encouraged even as a minister. I need at times to be called into account as a minister. There can be times when I need to be chastised and rebuked as a minister, and Presbyterianism sets that all up as a part of its structure. So, all that by the way. Okay, not so hard to take criticism if you can perceive a constructive purpose behind it. There's a great difference, you see, between destructive criticism and constructive criticism. Destructive criticism accomplishes nothing but to tear a person down. I think I've mentioned this in the past. I remember working for a man in printing some time ago who never bothered to analyze why things went wrong and then adopt a constructive plan for correcting a worker who made a mistake. His response, rather, was to let his temper get the best of him and fly into a temperamental rage. I remember his son-in-law worked for him as well. He once made the remark, I love it when he flies into a temperamental rage. He's so much easier to ignore then. It's these heart-to-heart discussions that I can't get away from that can make it difficult. But anyway, constructive criticism may issue a rebuke, but it will or it should be followed by constructive instruction that will prevent an error from recurring. Now, a mature man or a son knows how to distinguish between the two, constructive criticism and destructive criticism. An immature child doesn't know how to make the distinction. He views all criticism as unfair and destructive because it hurts his feelings, and therefore criticism of any kind is cruel and unnecessary and unfair. You can be sure that God's criticisms of his children are always constructive. They are always right, and they are always, therefore, good. And if you find yourself forgetting that, then the simple lesson that is taught by verse 5 
is that you might just need to grow up. Lloyd-Jones, in one of his sermons on this subject, points out that the word speaketh, the word of exhortation which speaketh to you as sons, could be translated by the word reasons. The word of exhortation reasons with you. And this again presupposes a level of maturity on the part of the Christian. When the Lord deals with us in chastisement, we are not to despise his dealings, but we are to reason with him in his dealings. This is the invitation that the Lord extends to his people in Isaiah 1. After describing their sinful condition and the hard times that have resulted from their sinful condition, the Lord says to them in verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I mean to tell you, when you have that word of encouragement and invitation coming from the Lord, it isn't such a daunting task to reason with him by admitting your own sins before him. The first positive response to the Lord's chastisement, therefore, is that we suck in our pride, stand up as sons, face the truth of our errors, and face the Lord's dealings as mature Christians. And in that maturity, we may reason with the Lord. We seek the reason at times, don't we, for his harsh dealings by examining our hearts and lives and coming clean with Christ. I find it interesting that it's in connection with the trials of our faith that James says in the first chapter of his epistle, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And right before that promise of wisdom, we're told, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And if you don't understand the purpose behind your trials, you don't seem to understand God's dealings with you in connection with those trials, then ask the Lord for wisdom. It's in that specific context that James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Now the difference between responding rightly to trials and responding wrongly to trials will depend on whether or not we interpret those trials correctly. A right response to trials, therefore, is the response of interpreting them in connection to our relationship to God through Christ. The world, you see, hates Christ, hates God. When God deals with the world, he deals in judgment. And in spite of that judgment, the world continues to gnash its teeth at God, as it were. 
That's what has always amazed me about the book of Revelation. We have the record of God unleashing his judgment on the world, and the world responds in anger to God and vents that anger on the Lord's people. The Christian is not to view divine chastisement the way the world views divine judgment. Look at what verse 6 tells us. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Make sure you get that connection between chastisement and love. We're to view God's dealings with us on the basis of his love. It is because he loves us that he corrects us. It is because we are sons that he disciplines us the way earthly fathers discipline their sons. So a right response to divine chastisement is to distinguish between God's dealings with us and his dealings with the world. When we are judged, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. That's 1 Corinthians 11.32. The matter of our condemnation, you see, has already been settled. It was settled by Christ when he bore it for us. There can be no condemnation to those who are joined to Christ because there has already been condemnation wrought upon Christ on our behalf. He redeemed us to himself in order that we might be conformed to his image. And this is what we have to understand about chastisement. It serves a purpose in our sanctification. God, you see, is preparing you for glory. God is moving us in the direction of holiness. We read later in chapter 12 that we are come to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. God's dealings with us then are based upon where we've come from and how we got there and where we're going from here. There is much preparation needed in our lives, you see, to get us ready for glory. This is why God deals with us the way he does. And if you can but see that in Christ you're the object of God's love, and in Christ you've been brought into the family of God, then there will be no way that you'll despise the chastening hand of God. On the contrary, you'll thank God for it. You'll confess as the psalmist does in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. When you see then the purpose that divine chastisement meets in preparing you for glory, you'll be enabled to take the long look rather than the short look. It's when we become short-sighted that we become tempted to despise 
the chastening of the Lord. If you view the Lord's dealings rightly, you'll see not only a purpose in preparing you for eternity, but you'll see a purpose in pruning you for fruitfulness while you serve the Lord in this world below. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us in verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. That's why we can't be glued to the present. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. There are great benefits, then, to divine chastisement. We gain assurance of God's love when he deals with us as sons. We make progress in holiness when God chastises us for our sins. We learn to set our affections on things above when God chastises us for being too affectionate toward the things of this world. We know that chastisement isn't fun. We know that it's very grievous. But we also know that God loves us and deals with us faithfully in mercy. And so I wonder today, as we bring our time to a close, is there anyone here that is under the heavy hand of God? Are you the recipient of divine chastisement? If you're not, chances are you have been, and chances are quite certain that you will be. It's part of God's dealings with all his redeemed ones. There are no exceptions. To take exception to it is to take exception to being a child of God. I trust that you'll forget not the word of exhortation that comes to you as sons. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Why? For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. May God help us then to read his dealings with us correctly in order that we may gain the benefit of his dealings, even the benefit of divine chastisement. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for the freedom we have to interpret every providential dealing of God as that which springs from our Father's love and not from his anger and not from his judgment, that issue being settled already by the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Help us, therefore, Lord, not to despise thy dealings, even when they become harsh or even when we may not understand them or agree with them. We pray thou wilt give us the needed grace to recognize what's taking place in our lives and why. So hear our prayers, dear Lord, and dismiss us with thy blessing and keep us in thy fear and be our abiding portion now in the days ahead as we launch out into this new week. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.